Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the back half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. And we have natural light pouring in the wall here. We have a new home. We also have a hole in the ceiling. When there was a big apocalyptic thunderstorm the other day, the roof kind of caved in and lots of the computers were flooded. So we're in a new office. This is the, the long and short of it. New office, more natural light, also more exposure to the elements. And fewer useful items. <laughs> And no caretaker and a sense of um, sense of possibility <laughs> and destruction. It's uh, it's like the the newfound land. It's, uh... <laughs> it's very nice in its position though, because it's between the old Bailey and the river. Hmm. So we can go be, and watch. Be no more specific. I won't be. No, it's not. It's not on. Uh... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're going to talk about a little trip I did recently to Dublin to talk to the writers. David Mitchell and Deborah Levy about their favorite albums. And we've got a sort of rogue non-aversary, which we're going to offload later in the episode. Before we do that, we should maybe just showcase this week's magazine, which has a um, a nice long interview uh, that you did, Kate, with Lily Allen. Mm, the divisive Lily Allen. Um, did she divide you? I was always divided on her in, in the first place. Mm. It's that funny thing where you, I found some of her early songs, I suppose around 2006, 7, 8 period, like quite quite smug um, and quite acerbic in a way that I didn't like at that age. And then the problem is when you start researching somebody, of course, you then come to understand them. And I very, very rarely have interviewed someone that I don't actually end up really liking. <laughs> Maybe that makes me a bad journalist. Who, who have you interviewed that you ended up still not liking? Well, I, I've had the opposite happen. I've oh, had right. someone I love who turns out to be an ass, who was um, Alison Krauss. Oh, really? Yeah. What is a shocker. A, why is she an ass? So she's, um, she just doesn't like the press and she's very uptight, but I, I really liked her music and yeah, I'd, I'd seen her. She's in, amazing. She's brilliant. Seen her in Colorado and was just starting out. And so I thought when I was sent to interview her that, oh, this is going to be a kind of great big, um, lovely circularity and, and I know a bit about bluegrass and stuff. And she was sitting in a, a darkened hotel room with the curtains drawn and um, she didn't want any natural light in there at all. And I asked her a question about uh, the politics of bluegrass as opposed to country music, because there is a bit of a divide. There's a lot of kind of left-wing yeah. folky stuff in bluegrass and a lot of right-wing politics in country. And she just looked at me and said, you're going to have to slow down and repeat the question because I do not understand a word you're saying. And the, the interviews kind of carried on in this very jittery state. And then I got out uh, of the hotel, it's near the Albert Hall, and I just burst into tears. Oh, no. <laughs> I just cried for like 15 minutes. So occasionally that can happen. Do you think she was having a bad day or do you think she just is an ass? She is like she that. Is an and she said to the PR afterwards, I hope I wasn't too hard on that girl. <laughs> Answer, yes. So what I got from reading your Lily piece is that just how sort of open and frank and honest she is, really. Yeah, sort of no no filterish yeah. kind of honesty, almost like post-therapy honesty or something. Um, 
very, you know, she just come out this, this week about uh, having cheated on her husband, the yeah. father of her children. And um, she's brought that up of her own accord and was talking about the double standards of you know, what goes on tour stays on tour for men, because apparently it was her husband's um, friends who were on her tour entourage on the She's Us tour, the famously sort of panned album. And she said that they were filtering directly back to her husband everything that, that she was doing, but that they were doing the same stuff. She said, I wasn't allowed the leeway that Keith Richards would have been allowed, which is great. <laughs> she always sort of seems to compare herself compare to herself male to figures, which is great. <laughs> but we met in the Union Club in Soho and literally about 200 yards away was the Groucho Club. And she told me that when she used to come home as a teenager and find the house empty and the family nowhere to be seen, she would just go and check into the Groucho because she knew she had credit there to get a bedroom, even if she'd maxed out her credit cards. So she's always like, from the start, she had people being very negative about her privilege and her, her sort of huge leg up into the music industry because of her father. But actually, you do get a sense of a horribly dysfunctional, rather possibly rather unpleasant house to grow up in when you hear that kind of thing. The one other thing, well, not the one, there was lots of interesting stuff. In <laughs> not <piece>. really. <laughs> Literally, there were two interesting things in the piece. The other thing that I thought was was really interesting was a point you made about, about this idea of honesty and, and openness and how actually that's really quite fashionable in, in pop music these days, but in a very kind of curated, managed mm. way. It's like every single um, personal tragedy or struggle of, the, of your kind of average pop star now is uh, is immediately flipped into a message of empowerment for all. So mm. all the all the sort of uh, people following them on Twitter are just sort of, you know, so there was a weird article in The Guardian recently where FKA Twigs was talking about her fibroids. And I thought we've hit a new level of, uh, of sort of ex- exposure of the personal side of the pop star. But yeah. also we haven't, because you look at like, Amy Winehouse and Lily Allen and the kind of living in public, what they were also singing about in their songs. It's a completely mm. different kind of um, of behavior and a, a different kind of life, really. It's self-destructive and it was messy and it was uh, sort of difficult, whereas there isn't that sense now with your, your Janelles and your um, Beyonce's and stuff. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Actually, this... This is going to lead us um, nicely into our into our next item because one of the albums that I talked about with um, David Mitchell and Deborah Levy was Joni Mitchell's Blue, which is absolutely that kind of un well I say unfiltered it is filtered through through a kind of amazing artistic uh, temperament and, and a brilliant brilliant kind of lyrical skill but um, very direct uh, personal experiences being being transposed into music and um she said of that record um that she felt like the cellophane wrapper on the packet of cigarettes 
So that kind of oh, um, wow. that kind of thinness of the self. Yeah. You know, there's nothing between you and you and the music. The thin veil of the of the self. So tell me. So you went. This was a. Tell us a bit about this. This was a feature that we ran in the Christmas issue that you've then developed into a, a wider project. Yes. So we've we've mentioned this we've mentioned this once before on the podcast. So I won't ramble on too long about it. But um, at Christmas we asked a bunch of writers to pick an album that was that was very important to them and to write us a little appreciation of it. And it's just taken on a bit of a life of its own in that it kind of seems to have seems to have struck a chord with people. And I went to, I was invited by the International Literature Festival in Dublin to go and do an event with um, David Mitchell and Deborah Levy talking about their choices, which were for David, Joni Mitchell's Blue, and for Deborah, David Bowie's uh, Ziggy Stardust. And yes, we we sat uh, we sat we sat on stage and had a they had a record player for us and brand new vinyl copies of the albums and we talked about them and and made the audience sit uh, in reverential silence and listen to their chosen tracks two from each which was kind of nice actually the venue uh, at one point was a church so it was it had a kind of nice. Uh, Nice, as I say, hushed, reverential atmosphere. Did you and listen to whole songs? We listened or? to whole songs, and there's a few there's a few seconds of awkwardness right at the beginning when you're like, "What am I supposed to be doing while this is while this is going on?" You know, I can't. You know, I'm not going to text or. Have you ever um, been to one of those classic album Sundays nights in, no. in London? They started a few years ago, but they were. Um, I suppose it was kind of reaction to the whole sort of let's say vinyl movement and it was it they happened above a pub in uh, north london they still do actually um, colleen murphy is this amazing woman who runs them um and she basically sits there and she'll play the whole of like abbey road and everybody just has to sit and listen to it and it's on high-end speakers but it is like you say it's a very odd feeling sort of communal listening mm. like that because when it's just listening to a record rather than a live act and it does it sort of you have to get used to it don't you yeah we're going to play Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on this podcast after we've had a little chat um, about sort of 15, 20 minutes of our of our conversation and um, Deborah and David talking about their their records, which they did ex- extremely eloquently. Um, what was the thinking behind getting novelists to talk about albums? I think <laughs> purely, really, that um, the quality of the writing would be would be <laughs> that much greater, and also that that, that they wouldn't approach it with um, uh, with a sort of music journalist's eye, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, they all gave something quite personal um, about their experience of of these records. And one thing which we didn't really talk about in the event, but I I was thinking about afterwards, was how many of the writers who who did this project ended up talking about an album that they first encountered as a teenager, and whether there's what what the factors are there is is there something kind of uniquely receptive about the teenage brain to this stuff or is it simply that you have the right amount of kind of dream time or you know your worries and concerns um you know if you're a if you're a reasonably kind of privileged person your worries and concerns are um all to do with yourself and and you know you've got that kind of inward inwardness um there's definitely the possibility for greater immersion when you're a teenager mm. but i think there's something almost um neurological about it yeah um, when we went to see the the play mood music recently we were talking about this line where one of the um psychotherapists in fact in the play says that it it stimulates the same neural pathways as love music does so that's also the age at which you fall in love isn't it for the first time when you're sort of 12 13 14 years old and I think there is something more complex than it just being that your lifestyle affords close listening or something the excitement and the kind of dopamine sort of hit that you get from your favorite song when you're a teenager is very very vivid or something yeah and they do and people do talk about it in in terms of falling in love that's that is that is how they feel and also you know certainly David talking about Joni, um, listening to Joni as a as a teenage boy, um, all these these very kind of involved songs of of lost love, um, you know, even though you haven't experienced these things, you kind of have the imaginative power to, to propel yourself into that situation. One of the things I liked about the feature is that. Um, people sort of seem to instinctively get that you weren't supposed to choose cool records, yeah. which is what music journalists would naturally have done. That you would have had, uh, 
some some of the more kind of obscure can records on there being explained by music journalists. But one of my favorite ones was that Lionel Shriver um chose a Mark Knopfler record from uh, the soundtrack to Last Exit to Brooklyn in 1990. So it, people just seem to understand, and maybe again, this is because you had a lot of novelists writing it, that it was more about um, uh, a record of sort of personal interest to you rather than what you just thought was the best album ever made. Mm, yeah, I was thinking about this because when this came up on the podcast a few weeks ago, I sort of said, oh, maybe it would be kind of Jeff Buckley or Nick Drake or something. But actually, I think having... Uh, spent a little bit of time thinking about Michael Jackson for a piece I wrote last week, it would almost certainly be Michael Jackson's Bad. Right, yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, not even, you know, even in, in terms of Michael Jackson is not the critically acclaimed one, but it's the one that I kind of absorbed totally fully, as not even really as a teenager, as a kid, actually. Is that the one you used to put your dad's fedora on to? Smooth Criminal, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How old were you? <laughs> um, sort of primary school age. And I went to a, um, uh, when I went to a school disco, um, I brought along a copy of, a vinyl copy of Thriller to the school disco for the DJ to play. Amazing. Um, I kind of told this to um, to Claire, um, my wife, with the, like saying, wasn't that kind of bizarre of me? And she said like, oh no, everyone did that at school discos. You brought, you brought your, you brought your own records. You brought the records. So obviously this was a thing. I can't, wow. I can't remember. But anyway, the amazing DJ, not only did he play, I can't remember what he played from Thriller, but he also gave me, he gave me a seven inch vinyl copy of um, Smooth Criminal. Uh, which you still have. Said, Thank you, which I still have. <laughs> but, but this is going a bit off beam, but um, the thing that's interesting to me, like listening again to that record and also like looking up some of the videos, because um, it's been so long since I've watched Michael Jackson's videos and they are amazing. But did you ever, did you listen to Michael Jackson no. at all? No, I liked him, but I, yeah. didn't, I didn't have any records. Because there's this film he made the year after Bad called Moonwalker, which is basically a bunch of his songs strung together. It's like music videos strung together. And it's a kid's film, basically. It's totally a kid's film. And it's got this sort of weird, like, narrative of, like, Danny DeVito plays this, like, evil genius. Not really a genius, just this evil despot trying to, like, track down Michael Jackson. <laughs> And Michael Jackson keeps um, sort of eluding him um, and then they sort of string the songs together within that. But um, Michael Jackson changes into, at one point when they corner him in, a, in an alley, he morphs into a like a futuristic sports car and then drives <laughs> away. And then later, later on, he turns like Transformer-like into a giant robot. Wow. This is like the, um, the sort of much more high-tech um, version of the kind of Hard Day's Night type film, where yeah. it's basically capers. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. just chasing the Beatles. And yeah. then suddenly John is hiding under the bubble bath and he's breathing through a pipe or whatever. And you're just like, basically, it's just let's get the pop star and then chase them down the street. Imagine that happening now. Beyonce with her visual albums. We were just running after Beyonce. <laughs> she was having to hide in wardrobes or put a wig on you, one thing's one thing's for sure. You don't get the sort of like screeds of internet like theories about like the hidden meanings in Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. Like, you would just, now. You might now, I suppose. But yeah, it's a far cry from from um, from Beyonce. And Why does he turn into Gambino. a car? Is he saying he's been turned into a machine by the industry? Yeah. That kind of thing. No, well, they'll probably just had a sponsorship deal. There may have that. been some of that thinking. I think he just liked that. You know, I think he just had fun with it, and he and he was he was a kid. Basically, there's two nice Beatles connections. You mentioned Hard Day's Night there, and he, I'm sure he would have, I'm sure he would have known that. But um, one thing I discovered from rewatching the video to Moonwalker is that it, it's as part of the video, there are three kids watching the action in Smooth Criminal when he goes into this gangster's den and does this dance, and one of them is um, Sean Lennon, uh, wow. who was a who was a, a friend of Jackson's and spent spent a lot of time on the Neverland branch, yeah. and actually weirdly has recently written a song about bubbles recently <laughs> yeah. the video is the online. time has come for his bubbles song. yeah the video is online and it's it's a very strange like almost vaudeville type video with a um an actor playing michael jackson and it's about the weirdness of neverland i was thinking about sean lennon the other day because he's he's actually had quite an interesting uh, sort of left field arty sort of music career. And he seems to be in a different camp to the sort of the Harper Simons and the Jacob Dylans, who you just feel tremendous 
sadness for <laughs> because they they are always going to be Paul Simon's son or Bob Dylan's son. But there's something about, I don't know, possibly the the fact that it was actually John Lennon. You've just got to deal with that, haven't you? you you're born as John Lennon's son and you just have to, you're not going to really break away. You just have to do something creative within that, within that legend or mm. something. And there's no, he doesn't seem to kind of connect with the legacy in 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 the same way that some of those other mm. some of those others do. Mm. Um, it's a um, bit stranger somehow. Yeah, it is a bit stranger. I think having like Yoko Ono as a parent as well must <laughs> must kind of help or not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're about to hear a clip of David Mitchell and Deborah Levy talking about their favorite records, Joni Mitchell's Blue and David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. Interestingly one year between those records so 1971 and 1972 <laughs> so i they're not david and deborah aren't the same age so but there is something about that kind of particular period in music i'm sure if we had um, david hepworth on here he'd he'd, <laughs> he'd ex- expand oh, well, he on that his, more his book was what 1971 as I, being the year that rock was I created think possibly yeah because it wasn't it the year of the album i think his right. theory was okay that, well that kind of fits perfectly yeah, then doesn't yeah. it and, and tapestry was no was tapestry a bit later no, I think was that was early 70s. And basically there's a theory that, that all the big rock albums came out in the right. same year. And before that, it was singles. It was yeah. single driven. But obviously yeah. you've got things like Sgt. Pepper, which kind of bucked that trend. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was the kind of the era where you would you would uh, allegedly bring your vinyl home and all sit around and listen to it together in, in your bedroom. And Well, they, these are, in a way, these do fit that mold because Bowie's album is effectively a concept album. Um, and I guess, yeah, Sgt. Pepper was probably the first, the first one of those. And then Joni Mitchell's is not a traditionally a concept album, but it does tell a very personal story throughout. And it is... It is and it's the, all of the same piece. sort of DNA, isn't it? It's an intense kind of single experience. Yes. You, you don't really dip into Blue. I think you do put it on and sit through the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. So the bit you're about to hear now is is Deborah Levy, um, the author, of course, of uh, Swimming Home and Hot Milk, two brilliant novels, and just recently published a memoir called The Cost of Living, which bizarrely actually features both Bowie and Joni Mitchell. So there's lots of lots of nice synchronicity here. That's a, that's a, a brilliant and very very funny book. Well, well worth getting. So Deborah is talking here. I've just asked her when she first encountered the David Bowie song, Starman? Well, I think I was 12, 13. I was living in West Pinchley in the suburbs. Um, my mum was about to come back from work, which meant that someone had to hoover the crisps on the carpet. <laughs> and um, my older brother, who, he, he was six years older than me, um, he didn't have the hoover in his hand. I tell you, Aristotle told us all politics start in the family. I had the hoover in my hand. And, um, and I have to set it up for you because the fashion then for, for male students like my brother, who I love very much, by the way, was that he had a, a, a Che Guevara hat on and a khaki coat and uh, he was very beardy, and um, and he lifted up his feet while I hoovered <laughs> up the crisps. And then Top of the Pops came on, and the Starman, I turned off the hoover, just in case you're wondering, the Starman came on, and he... Um, he crashed into my imagination. He crashed into my history. Like, for, for, for me, um, David Bowie died twice. First of all, Ziggy died, which I haven't got over uh, to this day. That's true, um, in, a, in a way. And then tragically, he died. You know, Bowie died. But when, when the Starman came on Top of the Pops... Um, and, and you think of my brother sitting on the sofa. There was this man in makeup and hair the colour of a, of a blood orange and no eyebrows and in a satin suit and Mick Ronson, he's leading guitarist in gold satin. And then, you know how it is 
when you've heard a song for for a thousand times, you have to imagine 1972, I think, mm. um, in Britain, um, where girls had to be girls and boys had to be boys. We were so pinned down. We were so fixed in these rigid masculinities and femininities and girls. I think I think what was out for us there was Mary Hopkins. No offense, because we did used to sing it in the bath. Those were the days, my friends. I thought they'd never end. And there was this androgynous, sex, sexualized alien. Um, and when he sang, if you if you if you can just try. I mean, I, I bet you can, for those who are fans, to hear those words for the first time. There's a star man waiting in the sky. He'd like to come and meet you, but he thinks he'll blow your mind. You know, yes, that's exactly what I want. Blow my mind. Take me away from my vile, earthly life. With, 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 with the hoover in my hand. <laughs> Fly me to a glamorous, freakish other world now. Um, so, so, so it was. It, it was like that, and um, and I think that song. Uh, if if you if if we can sparkle, he will land tonight. Mm. Like you have to remember twelve thirteen, okay? But you think, yeah, I will sparkle. And he will arrive tonight. He'll land in the little garden on the daffodils. The spaceship will arrive. Um, so the idea that there, there was an avatar, that, 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 that Bowie, I say Bowie. Do you say Bowie? Let's do a straw poll. Who says Bowie? Yeah. Who says Bowie? <laughs> You're in the minority. We did discuss. This is a sort of neutral zone in which you're allowed to express yourself okay. in whichever way you want, and that, that applies to the. I did ask Tom beforehand that because you know my generation. We, we said Bowie, and um, Paul Morley, who is the expert apparently on Bowie, says no, it's not Bowie because Bowie rhymes with Zoe, which was his son's name. Who then changed his name to Duncan. <laughs> but I think Bowie rhymes better with Zowie. How do we know his son wasn't Zowie? Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so anyway. Now. So, so, so that song, it, it just, I suppose that first glimpse of Bowie, um, it opened up an imaginative mm. space that was inside us and my generation of boys and girls anyway. So we were hus- hospitable to his provocation because we wanted to express some of our own freakishness because we were so pinned down. And, and, and that's the, that was my first glimpse of the Starman. I sort of feel like the classroom swap because you just extemporised, you just spoke poetry about Bowie, right? I can't really do that, so I wrote my little notes. And I'm now going to get it vanished to my final. I just didn't want to wing it, but because I just crashed. So uh, sorry if I go all <clears throat> Japanese on you. <laughs> um, so I was 18 in 1987 when I first heard Blue, Joni Mitchell's fourth studio album from 1970. And I was in that odd gap between uh, my... A-levels, which is, you know, would be the UK equivalent of leaving cert, uh, and receiving the results when you don't jinx your future by dreaming about it. So you have all possible futures and no futures all at the same time. Uh, I've bought Blue on cassette from a record shop in uh, Malvern, um, and by my time, even George Bernard Shaw's bus had gone. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher's cuts. So it was just a graveyard. Uh, near where I lived with my parents because uh, I think I heard Carrie on Annie Nightingale's late night Radio 1 show. Uh, this was in the days before music was as cheap as tap water, so every album you bought was a major gamble or, or perhaps a first date when you were footing the bill. Um, the circumstances of every first listen, that all-important first encounter, stayed etched in your memory, which I think is something lost to the Spotify generation. Really? It really... Mm matter you planned you 
was the opportunity cost in an album. You weren't only spending hard-earned Saturday Boy money on this album. You're also spending all the other albums you couldn't buy because you were buying this one. Uh, and I played Blue on my Walkman as I walked home along the slopes of the Malvern Hills. And some, da- some days get dyed certain colours in your memory. And that day is dyed sky blue and green. Uh, each song on Blue entranced me. And each song, as I listened to its every little note and word through my foam-cushioned speakers, beguiled me. The lyrics and the music were so honest and so unadorned and so raw, uh, so not yacht rock. It's a hard sentence to say, so not yacht rock. Um, that the life experiences of that successful female Canadian singer-songwriter living in Los Angeles and clearly enjoying much more sex than I was were nonetheless utterly relatable to an 18-year-old English boy still living with his parents and still waiting for his life to begin. I'd known at that point that literature and film could slip you into someone else's skin, but I'd never known a song to do that. A little historical context here for those younger than uh, us. Uh, Songs and their creators back then were, to me, they were badges of tribal affiliation. You were into the jam, Sex Pistols, Iron Maiden. You were them, they were you. Songs were also age markers, your parents liked Neil Diamond and John Denver and Barbara Streisand and the Spinners, while you under no circumstances had a good word to say about any of them. Songs were also sugar hives that you didn't confess to enjoying, ABBA or AHA. Songs were novelty gift items. Songs were an oven-ready answer to the question, who do I want to be like? Dominant shop window was top of the pops uh, previously mentioned. A weekly national... I think we ought to explain what that was, because not everyone will know. A weekly national TV event. Now, was it at 7.30 on Thursdays? Or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remembered right, because it was, it was EastEnders before on 7. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Steptoe and song. Generally, mm. Top of the Pops was an audio-visual gloop of mediocrity in which bobbed only the occasional morsel of anything with a mind of its own. Indie was beginning to happen, but I didn't enjoy being miserable enough to get into it. <laughs> Classical music had been sealed off by music teachers, and jazz was just a mystery. So why would anyone voluntarily choose to listen to it? <laughs> well, what songs were not, what songs were never, until my first play of Blue, was poetry. Poetry tumbling with wit, intelligence and naked emotion. Poetry is act like a sentient miner's helmet, illuminated as it commentated, uh, as it commented, as it explored the soul of a human being. Notably, entering my final paragraph here, uh, the soul of a female human, ble- uh, human being. Describe my my teenage understanding of girls of girls and women merely as ignorant would be an act of stupendous self flattery. Uh, my uh, my mum and my wife Kay and daughter and other women I've been honoured to know down the years might readily attest that things haven't much improved, but at least I now know that my ignorance is real and that in part the happiness I derive from life and any modest contribution I can make to life is in part dependent upon spelling that ignorance. Uh, I trace the beginning of the understanding I'm trying to talk about to Blue and its unapologetic female view of a holiday fling, a carry, infatuation, a case of view, uh, an old flame, the last time I saw Richard, or an infant daughter given up for adoption uh, in a song called Little Dream, about which more later. Not all of the albums and songs are um, exclusively female experiences, but none of the songs alienated me as a young male. They fascinated me and helped me begin, just begin, to understand how little I knew. The songs are agendaless. They don't harangue. They don't blame. They are personal, but they don't feel self-absorbed. They express regret, but not self-pity. I hadn't encountered any songs, or really not much art, that co-mingled all of these merits. 
but still happen. Uh, I would like to give the last words to uh, the creator uh, from an interview from 1979. The Blue Album, there's hardly an there's hardly a dishonest note in the vocals. At that period of my life, I had no personal defences. I felt like a cellophane wrapper on a pack of cigarettes. I felt like I had absolutely no secrets in the world, and I couldn't pretend in my life to be strong or to be happy. But the advantage of it in the music was that there were no defences either. I was being told that people were horrified by the intimacy of it. People said it was shocking. It wasn't. It was a It was about human nature. It's all I had to work with. It's the soul trying to find itself and seeing its failings and having regrets. And what's so horrible about that? You've just been listening to David Mitchell, uh, the novelist, author of uh, Cloud Atlas and um, many other novels, talking about Joni Mitchell's Blue. And I followed on from this by asking David and Deborah how... uh, music interacts with their writing and specifically to start what they thought was Joni Mitchell's great skill as a, as a writer, as a lyricist. Joni, it's those long breaths. It's the tone, actually, more than, more than uh, the lyrics. Although, you, you know, the, when she sings blue, and it just, it, that, that breath goes on and on. Angela Carter... She, her sentences went on six, six or seven lines before full stop. No, you know, I, just just to try and sort of bang the two together. So that mm. long, those long breaths, and then as you say, um, speaking speaking the truth about about something painful. Just it's disguised. That little green, that's a beautiful title, actually. Um, Be better than a more literal name. Um, You can feel that it's coming from a very deep place in her. But it's it's the long breaths. And then now and again, all those rhyming schemes come in like tomorrow and sorrow. You sort of begin to see how how she's putting it together. Whereas Bowie was more into, he, 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 he was more into artifice and cut-ups and a brilliant writer, um, but but his game was was very different. I mean, I wonder if Bowie actually ever wrote a, a, a completely personal song. Now that we're here, maybe you. Where are we you, now? Yeah. Where are we? Oh gosh, yeah. Where are we now? That that was that's like a Joni song. That, it is. Yeah. That that was yellow, was exactly the question I was asking myself when that when that came out. But maybe fans do say stuff like that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you felt that the same. But you know, where am I now? And that I think that's just and and maybe Black Star mm. and and all the rest of it. But the exceptions yeah. that prove the rule, though. Mm. Um, can I just read something? Because he's read something, <laughs> and um, it's sort of also to do with with Joni in a way. Because um, when I when I listen to music, when I write, it's not really for the lyrics, although they mean a great deal to me. It's um, it's for the tone. So when I was writing Swimming Home, uh, Kirk Bain um, smells like teen spirit. That hello, 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 hello. That um, in my book, I was trying to find a tone for a male character who was going to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. And although this is very abstract, it seemed to me that Kirk Bain was also, this is totally subjective, okay, but sort of that hello was also a bit, the tone of it was a bit wistful. It was a bit like a goodbye. So that there's quite a lot of that tone in um, swimming home. In, in swimming home, but Joni, Joni wasn't up in space. That's with with little green, 
And here is Sophia, in, uh, who's 25, um, in, in my novel, Hot Milk. And um, what I was thinking about was some of those comments that are under YouTube when you watch music. And I have a lot of slack for those. I love them. I, I actually adore them. And um, like someone wrote, we don't, why don't we sing about space anymore? And I thought, yeah, we don't. <laughs> and Sophia in, in this book, is she, she has a screensaver uh, of the Milky Way and she's always on her laptop in, in a digital space and I'm playing Space Oddity while I'm writing this, Ground Control to Major Tom. It's very abstract, this, um, but nevertheless, that is as a writer, that's how I use music to find a tone. This is Sophia speaking all summer, I had been moonwalking in the digital Milky Way. It's calm there, but I am not calm. My mind is like the edge of motorways where foxes eat the owls at night. In the digital star fields, with their faint, faintly glowing paths running across the screen, I have been making footprints in the dust and glitter of the virtual universe. It never occurred to me that, like the Medusa, technology stares back and that its gaze might have petrified me, made me fearful to come down, down to earth, where all the hard stuff happens, down to the checkout tills and the barcodes and the too many words for profit and the not enough words for pain. Well, Joni had enough words, didn't she? Yeah. 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 Um, I was just thinking back to my thesis that uh, music is an opposite of writing. Mm. Uh, well, I to defend that more. Writing makes, when it works, it, it kind of strengthens and clarifies the radio signal kind of inside myself, it makes me more like myself than I normally am. When I, yeah, that's absolutely that's brilliant. Yeah, it obviously needs to be work that you have a rapport with. But but I felt that if I may say so, when I was when I was reading um, the cost of living, it's um, music's the opposite for me. Uh, I, I, I will put a song on. In order to get a blast of otherness, it is someone else. It is, and it, it, it takes me out of me, not deeper into me. Uh, it, it is, it is a scene, the actor, and the script that I morph into and enact and be for the three or four minutes that it's on, uh, and that's why it's useful for my work because I need to make my characters as less like me as I can as I can. Now there'll be me in them if I wanted or not, because where else is the character coming from? But I use songs and music and other art forms as well to um, to mix what I am up, to 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 add otherness, to add Sid Barrett or Elvis or David Bowie or anyone other than me uh, to make my characters less mm. like me. The kind of otherness injections. That was the novelists David Mitchell and Deborah Levy talking about Joni Mitchell and David Bowie at the International Literature Festival Dublin. And finally, our non-anniversary uh, this week, which is the sort of cultural event of um, some interest, but possibly not that much interest. Um, slightly more conceptual this week, an uh, interesting book, a Tashin book turned up called All American Ads of the 90s. Our attention was caught by the, the term 90s, yeah. which is a recurrent theme on this podcast. So we are in keeping with our sort of usual um, yeah. process here of looking back on things that we've sort of forgotten about. And the theory behind this book is that 1990s advertising 
closed the century with an obsession with blockbusters and sex, which I don't really recall from 90s advertising, but it's an interesting theory. I think I, I suppose I get the the sex part because there's lots of, <laughs> um, I just think of like the Hello Boys Wonder Bra ads that cause like crashes at busy junctions all around Oh, all around yeah. the UK. I don't know if that was an urban myth. I don't think it was. I think there was I think there was one big billboard that uh, <laughs> lots of drivers. Yes, lots of ads we would now not probably have because they weren't entirely politically correct, had their final sort of fling in the 1990s. Yeah, period. what's what's funny about this is that you you associate that unpeaceness with ads from the 70s and possibly the 80s, but it, it persists well into the 90s. I just wanted to th- this is one one ad that would Definitely not get <laughs> uh, get get nowhere now. So um, this is bizarre. This is an ad for tequila, okay? And it's a picture of a woman in a uh, she's scantily clad. I mean, it's sort of a bikini. Um, and then the simple text runs over her bosoms, says she's a he, okay? Fair enough. And then the the slogan is life is harsh. Your tequila shouldn't be. <laughs> So I don't if you're even, trans, just drink. I think, well, that's one reading of it. The, the other reading of it is that it's aimed at sort of frat boy, um, you know, who's just scored this girl. Oh, I see. And then found out that she's actually... Oh, I get it. She's actually trans. And then it is really, you know, upset by yes, this. Yes, like the classic um, thing in... Um, so he's going to drink himself into oblivion with tequila. In Crocodile Dundee, when he gets taken to his first club in New York and right. it, a transvestite right. in this case is talking to him and then he actually grabs the crotch. Yes, And exactly. then, of course, that brings out her male voice and that's the big yeah. joke of the, uh, of the scene. So what else do we have here? Oh, is that Right Said Fred? It looks like Right Said Fred, doesn't it? This is a... Uh, like that's a man, Right Said Fred. <laughs> I can see this is going to wear thin on you, listen to me simply describing in, de- <laughs> in detail ads. But um, uh, I guess this is, uh, you know, we've got Ian Leslie who writes for us really well about advertising. And there's a piece coming up about um, how we're actually in an era in which advertising is dying. Advertising as a sort of, uh, as an industry and as an art form is dying because it's no longer about kind of, there's no longer any value in telling a, really interesting story or kind of like creating over time like deep brand loyalty because actually people don't have that anymore they're just like what is the thing that i'm being served immediately and i want to click on and buy they're not they're not kind of in the old days you had to create ads that would stay in people's Mm. heads so when they actually came to like buy something that would be part of their subconscious and now it's all in front of us anyway this is a an ad for a honda civic and it's a a right said Fred esque bald guy with a with a civic car keyring as an earring. <laughs> I think maybe what's changing with advertising is that in the past, because there's a bit more sort of time and repeated viewing of ads, you they actually did have characters and narratives. Didn't yeah. They? Whereas now, check uh, the ads on the underground in London; they reflect their idea of you back at you all the time. Yes. So it's um, someone who's supposed to look uh, like a typical Londoner because they've got a massive shovel-shaped beard and loads of tattoos, and they may be starting a microbrewery or something. But that's not a character; that's supposed to be the person who's looking at yeah. you. Yeah. And there's a, there's an awful one um, which we've talked about, which drives us crazy because it's about uh, for Airbnb. And um, it's trying to encourage you to put your property up for Airbnb when you go on holiday. And it's just a woman laughing, like a kind of woman with her hair up laughing. And the slogan is something like, um, I love putting my house on Airbnb. I love the money even more. So, and I'm just thinking, what, what, what else does she love about giving her house up to strangers? She just loves life because she's, you know, living today and she has access to the internet. You're totally right. It kind of, it makes looking through this, this book quite fun because you were albeit often pretty on pc but you were served up something aspirational and something other than yourself and um, whereas now you're just served yourself mm. back at you for instance i'm sure if you had a g-shock watch you didn't wear it like that which is um suspended above your crotch on two thumbs <laughs> according to um this advert from, yeah. Casio G-Shock. Do you remember Casio G-Shock watches? G-Shock, yeah, early 1990s. This was the baby G, the the woman's version. But yeah, it says, 
uh, sex appeal, as in S-E-C-S. <laughs> I had a great um, wave of nostalgia looking at this book because there is there was a, a, mar- a milk marketing campaign ad, but the American version from the early 90s that had um, famous celebrities with a milk moustache. And also Gene Simmons, a very disgusting picture of Gene Simmons, having dipped his tongue in chocolate milk. So his famously long, like 12-inch tongue. And it made me think of the fact that in the um, 80s and 90s, there were far more ads for things that we kind of use every day. So what's happened to that? They don't advertise milk on TV no. anymore in the UK. No. And they don't advertise sanitary towels anymore. Do you remember body form ads? The Do amazing, they not advertise Wah! sanitary towels? Well, I can't remember seeing a sanitary towel ad for a long time. Hmm. It's almost like they've accepted that women know what they are, yeah. so they don't need to advertise yeah. them anymore. And then there was the famous one of um, uh, with the Dr. Alban soundtrack of the woman um, roller skating along in Malibu um, with 10 dogs on a kind of big lead that was dragging her along, and that was for tampons. Right. But now we know what tampons are, so we don't need this roller skating one. It was always roller skating, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the kiss one is, is amazing. Lick it up is the, uh, is the tagline. So we have, um, yeah, Mike Myers, well, Austin Powers with the milk moustache, and also Hanson. Oh. Yeah. Um, it's quite a sweet campaign. It's sort of innocent, really, to, to think that you're advertising milk. So... Um, this is a this is a good. They are. It is very American, but a lot of these um, a lot of these crossover, and it's a good. Uh, it's, oh look, and there's and there's um, Michael Jackson's Dangerous, um, which is that kind of fairground dog. I really remember that dog with a crown. I don't know why that it's, imprinted it's itself on my hideous, mind. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is actually just a pure representation of Michael Jackson's brain. <laughs> it is. The chimp, on, the chimp above his head. Um, so yeah, it's called All American Ads and it's published by, by Tashin. And that is this week's slightly rogue non-aversary. Thank you for downloading this week's episode of The Back Half. We'll be back in a fortnight. We've been edited by Caroline Crampton and our playout music is the gonad trampling pistol jazz with their song Godspeed. <laughs>